to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on hightruths.com. Hi, everyone. I want to chat with you about safe injection sites or safe consumption sites for drugs. Is this a good or bad public health policy? Will this save lives or cost lives? This debate is happening on a national and local basis. The Biden-Harris administration published their national drug policy priorities for year one. For the first time ever, harm reduction was listed as a priority for America. What is harm reduction? Harm reduction refers to policies and programs that aim to minimize the negative health, social, and legal impacts associated with drug use. Harm reduction is very important for a certain segment of the population who is already addicted to drugs, especially intravenous drugs. Giving people who inject drugs clean needles is smart public health policy since it is much cheaper than treating HIV, AIDS, and hepatitis, other infections, as well as saving lives. Giving fentanyl strips to people who use drugs but don't want their drug of choice to be contaminated with fentanyl and die by accident makes sense. If you're using cocaine or what you think may be a Xanax pills, you may be making a bad decision, but you should not die for it. What about government investment in bricks and mortar for a building and salaries paid for health care staff and a medical director to provide a location, a safe location, to inject or ingest drugs where there is staff standing by with naloxone ready to uh, reverse an opioid overdose? Is that smart health policy? Well, let's look at the science. Safe injection sites have been operating in Canada since 2003. Australia also has safe injection sites. Let me clarify that a safe injection site is a building or facility where people come to inject drugs with staff at hand to treat an overdose. This is different than needle exchange, where people turn in dirty needles in exchange for new clean ones. So in Vancouver, Canada... Their safe drug consumption site has supervised more than 3 million injections and responded to 6,000 overdoses. They say that no one ever died there. Wow, that sounds like a great idea. But wait, not so fast. No one ever died at the facility. However, the people dying all around from drugs in Vancouver is high. As a matter of fact, Vancouver has almost the highest number of drug overdoses in the entire world. The number of overdoses from opiates has been steadily increasing in Canada since 2003. A study from Alberta, Canada, resulted in a freeze on funding for any new supervised consumption services sites pending review of socioeconomic impacts. The study pointed out concerns on public safety, general social disorder, homelessness, economics of nearby businesses, and a concern with the site operation. Turns out 
Now, while it may be true that no one dies at the injection site, rarely do people enter addiction treatment, and they may even die just outside that site. While there may be some people in Canada and Australia who use drugs and want to use a site for injection, we have not studied the American population to even know whether people with a substance use disorder would use such a site or, as I suspect, would want to use drugs in the comfort of their own home or location. So, with no science, no consideration to the whole socioeconomic cost, and with heavy emotion, counties across the United States are pushing for safe injection sites as an answer to the drug crisis. And now, let's hear a question from John Lovell, a legislative advocate from Sacramento, California. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is John Lovell, and I'm a legislative advocate in Sacramento. Uh, I work on a number of substance abuse issues and addiction issues. Right now, I'm focused on what are referred to as safe injection sites. Unfortunately, it is my view that safe injection sites do not achieve their objective. In fact, the um, areas around safe injection sites typically have a higher level of overdose deaths than uh, is the norm. Um, and they also tend to be petri dishes of um, coronavirus. Uh, but I'm really interested in whether uh, you agree with uh, that analysis or if you have a different view. Thank you, John. And this is indeed a great question. And I think that you've already uh, heard some of my opinions in the introduction. However, to find out whether safe injection sites are a worthwhile investment or save lives, let's talk to a high-truth expert who has experience in using intravenous drugs and being homeless. Our expert is Thomas Wolf. Just three years ago, he was homeless and injecting heroin on the streets of San Francisco. He has spent time in hospitals for infections, went to jail for holding drugs, until he found recovery. He's now an advocate for drug policy reform. Tom rose from the depths of despair to becoming an unintentional celebrity. He's active on social media, and his story has been featured in local, national, and international news, including CNN and the New York Times. Tom's bio is available on the High Truth show notes and his website, www.tomwolf.org. Thomas Wolf, welcome to High Truths, and thank you so much for being our High Truths expert. I look forward to our interview because we haven't met, and I've been really wanting to meet you because of all the, the um, social media that you're posting that got all the way from you know Twitter to the upper uh, policymakers in San Diego and, our, and the country about uh, your advocacy work. So, so nice to meet you. Thank you, and um, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. I thought that we'd start with letting our listeners know about your journey into and, and out of drugs. Wow. Well, it's it's quite a story, actually. Um, it's something that you would think that, you know, maybe you would see in a movie almost. Uh, so my journey started in early 2015. I, uh, to give you some background, I was just kind of your middle-class guy. I worked for the city and county of San Francisco, uh, married with two kids, a homeowner, and I had surgery on my foot. And uh, 
leaving the hospital, I was prescribed oxycodone for the pain, uh, 10 milligram oxycodone tablets for the pain. How, how many pills did you get? They gave me uh, 30 days, th- uh, not 30 days, 30 pills, just 30 okay, pills. Just 30 That's all it took. So, um, you know, I, I took one, I remember when I got home and then I kind of felt a little loopy and I really liked the way that it made me feel. So I popped two. And uh, pretty soon uh, I started using it, not just for the pain, but also kind of for the euphoria that it gave me as well. And, uh, you know, later on, I would find out that, you know, in my recovery, you know, I was also self-medicating for other past issues that I was having in my life, in my marriage. My marriage was struggling at that time. I was having some financial problems at that time. So uh, that euphoria kind of took away a lot of that anxiety on top of the fact that I was trying to heal from foot surgery. And anyway, I ran through that supply of pills uh, in just a few days, um, maybe a week. And as I was running out, I started to feel sick, started to feel like what's going on. I was getting cold sweats. I was feeling some withdrawal. And you, know, you were withdrawing after just a week? Uh, yeah, because I was taking, I would take two or three pills at a time and chew them up uh, and then swallow them or let them melt under my tongue. So I was taking 30 milligrams at a time of oxycodone. Um, and I, you know, after a few days, I kind of started feeling a little, a little funny. Um, and I didn't like the way that that made me feel. And I wanted to get some more. So I contacted my doctor and I couldn't get more. They wouldn't give them to me because it wasn't enough time. I had passed to get a refill or anything like that. So, um, I started, um, thinking about where I could get more of these pills. And, um, you know, at first I, I remember going to my parents' house and my dad had some Vicodins and I kind of snatched those out of his medicine cabinet and I took those. Uh, and then, uh, as time went on after a few more days, I was like, well, I wonder if I can get some of these on the street. I've heard that you can, I've heard that there's this place called pill Hill in the city where you can get, um, get, uh, pills on the street or drugs on the street. And I was kind of scared to go down there. So I actually went on the internet and I started pulling up, you know, Googling Pill Hill, San Francisco, and I found some references on YouTube of a place, uh, Golden Gate and Leavenworth in the city, where you could buy pretty much any kind of opioid that you want on the street. And I um, proceeded one day to work up the courage because I wasn't feeling good and I was in a lot of pain to go down there. So I went down there with my foot in a boot uh, with, uh, with crutches, literally drove down there, parked the car, got out, went up to the corner of Golden Gate and Leavenworth, and I found five or six people that were selling a variety of different opioids, 30 milligram Roxy's, 80 milligram uh, OP80's, uh, Opana's, uh, Norco's, um, Percocet, and I proceeded to buy uh, some blue uh, Roxycodone 30 milligram pills. What'd and, you pay? Uh, I paid $30 a tablet for those. So I remember I bought uh, four of them to start and that kind of started my journey. And what I was doing is I would either break them in half. Uh, I would uh, let them melt under my tongue or chew them up. And then um, those ran out after about a day. So I actually found an excuse to leave the house again uh, and went down there and I bought some more. And this time I bought like 10 uh, to last me a few days. Um, and then I started going on the internet to find out uh, how else I could maximize my high with these pills. So I found out that you could grind them up, crush them up, like with a mortar and pestle, you know, and snort them. So I started snorting it. And that's when I got really, really high. And, uh, and it was a great feeling because I didn't have any pain. Have you ever snorted anything before that? Yeah. Back in the eighties, I snorted some Coke, you know, um, like most people did in my, my age group, I'm a Gen Xer. So, you know, in high school, we all snorted a little cocaine, 
but that was the first time in a long time. And I remembered back then about, you know, taking a straw and cutting it in half or rolling up a dollar bill and using that to snort. And anyway, how were you, how old were you at the time that I did that? I was 17, 18. No, that's the cocaine at at 17, 18. No, the um, snorting oxycodone. Oh, I was 45, 45. So my addiction did not manifest until I was in my mid forties. Um, you know, I come from a family of alcoholics though. So I feel like that I had a predisposition to addiction. And um, then do you feel like you were primed for, for that in your youth? I don't, I don't know if I was primed for it. I mean, we all experimented again, you know, in the, in the late eighties, I experimented a lot with pot and cocaine. I left that all behind by my early twenties, except for alcohol. Um, so I wouldn't say I was primed, but I certainly knew how to do it because I had learned how to snort Coke back in the eighties and I didn't, you know, you didn't, you don't forget. So I'll say that. Um, what I think was the most surprising for me is one, how great the drug made me feel when I used a lot of it. Uh, and how I guess I could, I felt like any way that I could control it at that time. Um, I was still able to function right as I healed from my foot surgery and whatnot. And, um, and, you know, nobody seemed to notice because I was being kind of slick about it. So my wife didn't really pick up on the fact that, you know, I was pulling 200 or 300 out of the bank here and there and going down to the tenderloin and, um, and buying uh, pills off the street. Uh, and then thing, things started to change <clears throat> when I found one dedicated guy that I could buy from on the street. He was actually a veteran, an older gentleman who was a veteran that had two prescriptions, both from the VA. He had one for 80 milligram oxycodone and one for 30 milligram morphine. And he used to keep half the morphine for him and he would sell all of the oxycodone and the rest of his morphine on the street. And once I found him, I started buying in bulk at 80 milligrams a pop and those were the OP80, so they're time released. Um, But you still find ways around that. There's ways to get around that um, with breaking the pills in half and sucking on them. And you can even go so far as to to do things like work on taking off the coating so you can remove the time lapse on the on the pills itself. And, uh, you know, there's plenty of information online to find out how to go about doing that. I didn't have any trouble finding out how I could go about doing those things. It's interesting that you went through this in 2015 when we were going down in prescription opioids 2011 was the peak right. of of you know excessive prescribing by the medical community but 2015 was starting to kind of turn a little bit well maybe it was turning a little bit and i can't account for you know what the drug policy was at that time but i what i can tell you from my personal experience is that the primary guy that i found on the street had two scripts at the same time from two different doctors at the va for, right. his, for his pain and he was still able to get that at that time. And I mean, I used to drive him to the VA hospital and wait for him in the parking lot while he picked up oh the scripts. And then he was, I would, your mule. He, was, he, was he was my mule, but he also made probably $100,000 off of me too, because I was paying 30 bucks a pill from him. So you, you, you have to understand that, you know, as, addic- as addiction is a progressive disease, right? At the peak of my addiction to using pills, I was taking seven OP80s a day. That's 560 milligrams of oxycodone a day at 30. Which would, that would kill most people. Right. At $30 a pill. So that's $210 a day times seven days a week. You do the math. And I did that for, you know, 2015, 2016, up into mid 2017 um, before 
really everybody kind of caught on to what was going on. Uh, and my, the levy kind of broke for me when my wife got a foreclosure notice on the house um, because I had gone back to work and I was still working, but I wasn't paying the mortgage. I was taking my entire paycheck and I was spending it on drugs at that time. Uh, and again, if you do the math at $210 a day, a time seven days a week, you know, that adds up. Right. And um, so at that point, you know, my wife started cutting me off from all the money because she knew something was wrong. But, you know, when you in a codependent marriage and there's a lot of denial and addiction, um, I just you know took a little money I had and I went back down to the street. And instead of going to my regular guy to buy pills, I walked one block over to the organized drug dealers to sell heroin. And I bought my first dime of heroin. And uh, I, that was when I made the switch in early 2017 to heroin from um, oxycodone. Was that also a switch from snorting to injection? Yeah, that was for a switch from snorting and, you know, just popping pills to injection. Uh, again, I looked up on um, on uh, YouTube how to how to inject properly uh, through one of those harm reduction videos that they post about using safely. And, uh, you know, it didn't work out so good. I have uh, I have 26 scars on my body um, oh, no. from injecting. Uh, I gave myself sepsis from injecting because I would miss the vein and uh, it would abscess and uh, I got too many of those and I ended up spending six days in the hospital, uh, two of them in intensive care intubated um, and almost died. Wow. And that should have been uh, my rock bottom, but it wasn't um, at that point. You know, I remember still going into the hospital and the ER doctor, you know, I had 104 fever. My right hand was swollen up like a balloon. Uh, and the doctor came up to me and the first question she asked is, do you use intravenous drugs? And of course I lied. And I said, no, I don't. That was a, a spider bite that got infected. I remember I told her that. <laughs> it's amazing how many spiders are like right. killing people right. all over right. America. That's right. <laughs> like, oh, a spider bite, huh? Okay. <laughs> so, so, you know, um, and then, so that, so of course, after surgery in the hospital and they drained all my abscesses and everything, I spent six days in the hospital and they were keeping me high on hydromorphone for the pain. So I wasn't in any kind of withdrawal at all. I was, I was actually high as a kite. I was fine in the hospital. Were you um, faking your pain or had real pain in order to get your, your fix in the <sighs> hospital? So I had real pain in the hospital from the sepsis. That was the most painful thing I've ever experienced in my life. All the, ab the, abscesses. the abscess, the abscess. Yes. Yeah. They're unbelievably painful, like excruciating pain. And I had four or five on my body at the same time at one point. Um, so I, I can't even describe to you that that pain was like a deep, deep, ugly pain. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, that's what I do every day is drain abscesses. Yeah. And, and uh, it, it's just brutal. I mean, I tried to control it at home for a while and everything and try to cover them up. And I mean, no, it, it gets worse. It'll just build up. Right. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'll show you, I can show you, I've let, I've scars all over my legs and my arms, um, on my stomach, everywhere from where I tried to shoot up and missed. And I was really bad at shooting up. Apparently I had a really bad time registering and finding a vein. I don't know why. I guess those Google so, videos didn't do so great. They, they didn't, not for me. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, you would have thought that would have been my rock bottom, but it wasn't. I switched to, uh, when I got out of the hospital, they sent me home with a bottle of Dilaudid and, uh, the, oh, no. the, yeah. <laughs> so I ate those up pretty quick. And, uh, then I was, you know, started sneaking out of the house at night when my wife and kids were asleep and driving down to the tenderloin and scoring heroin again. And I knew about smoking heroin as an option. I know that it's not as effective, but I certainly was paranoid about sticking a needle back in my arm after what had just happened to me. 
So I started smoking heroin and foil. How many years were you injecting drugs? Not that long. Um, Let's see. A year, maybe. All right. Yeah. yeah, six hospitalization. You said within one year. I mean, yeah, a, a six-day hospital stay in intensive care. Um, I think your health goes down the tube fast once you start injecting. It does. It, I I would agree with that. Um, and you know what I found is that you know later on, um, well, let me back up. So anyway, I started smoking heroin on foil. I was sneaking out of the house at night to go score my dope, basically two in the morning. Uh, I started stealing money out of my wife's purse. I was. Uh, going to my parents' house at night. I stole my dad's checkbook. I remember I wrote some checks, you know, bad checks and cashed them for money for drugs and all those things. And, you know, by that time, this is already in, in the 2017 already, I had, I had um, quit my job. I just stopped going to my job. So I no longer had the $80,000 a year county job. And that was all because of drugs, right? That was because of my addiction. Did your wife and family know that you were so using intravenous drugs and addicted how can i put this so if you talk to my wife now she'll say yes i knew but at the time she was truly in denial about what was going on and you know we had to go through both of us had to go through a lot of counseling and therapy and she had to go to a lot of al-anon and Narnon meetings to face some of that codependency and denial um You know, it's hard because someone described me once as a pillar of the community. I don't know if I was ever a pillar of the community, but I certainly was a family man uh, that had a decent job and a a home and I was providing for my family and I fell out pretty hard. And I think it was pretty hard for my family in general, my whole family in general to come to grips with the fact that somebody that had made a decent life for himself could fall so fast out of that. uh, and kids? Do you have kids? I do. I have a 14-year-old daughter and a 12-year-old son. So when all of this were, was happening, they were small. They were like eight and six when this was all going down, um, the worst of it. Um, and, uh, you know, or nine, ten, I mean, they were just babies still. Do you think they were affected? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely affected by it. Uh, especially my daughter, who's the oldest. She definitely has more memory. So, you know, there's some things that, you know, I'm not comfortable about talking about, but I feel like they need to be talked about so that we understand the maladaptive behavior that comes along with addiction and the desperation of addiction. So, you know, um, imagine me, a family guy driving a Honda Odyssey minivan, driving with my kids in the back seat down to the tenderloin to score heroin. So, and then say, Hey guys, hide under this blanket and pretend and pretend you're hiding while I go scored my dope. Are you ever afraid of being called out for child abuse? Yes, of course. But, you know, mm-hmm. again, the desperation of addiction is right. so strong. You don't care. I, Absolutely. I, I didn't care. And, you know, those are things I have to own in my recovery. Your brain gets hijacked by that dopamine, by the need for that dopamine. Oh, absolutely. And, and so you're making irrational decisions. And it's not just that. Yeah, the need for dopamine is a, is a really nice way of saying dope sick. Okay. I got, mm-hmm. I got dope sick and I was afraid of getting dope sick. And. I was, I became more afraid of getting dope sick than wanting to get high. Like I, I didn't, I used those drugs towards the end. Like when I was out on the street, I was getting, I was using heroin so I wouldn't get dope sick. I wasn't using heroin so that I would feel good anymore. It was about just trying to get to feeling normal. Describing on this show, we had Dr. George Koob who discovered the science and the cycle of addiction in your giving a perfect description of the negative effects of that pull from, from you're doing it just in order to avoid the negative effects. That's right. 
That's ex- yeah. that's exactly uh, what it is. And you know, the, the levy really broke for me when um, you know one night I was still I was still at home. I was using it. I was smoking heroin at this point. I was still at home. Uh, I snuck out of the house about two in the morning again. Stole some money from my wife uh, and drove. Took the car. Took the minivan to the tenderloin. And I didn't come home for eleven days. I went on an eleven day bender out in the tenderloin. And uh, I basically spent all that money and just sat there and got high uh, for 11 days. I would, you know, call my family and say I'm desperate or I'm in trouble. And my dad would give me his, you know, pin code for his ATM machine because with Wells Fargo, you can do it without a, a card now. You just need the code. And I would pull money from his account. I mean, all this terrible, terrible, terrible stuff that I did because of my addiction that I had to own, that I have to own now. Um, anyway. I got found by the cops one day. They came knocking on the window of my car like 11 days later, and the car was strewn with foil, with used foil and straws, a couple of needles, crack pipe, you know, all that. The cops just said, hey, are you Thomas Wolf?" And I said, yeah. I said, well, you know, your wife is looking for you. She filed a missing persons report. Um, I was like, yeah. I said, well, you know, I'm going through some stuff right now. And they were like, you okay? Are you going to hurt yourself? I'm like, no. And they said, okay, go home. They didn't arrest me, all the drug paraphernalia around, everything, you know, they just said, go home. So I went home. Do, you, do <laughs> this part of you wish you were arrested? Well, in, in, in retrospect, yes, because my journey through the criminal justice system is what, what helped me get clean initially. So, um, you know, I, I got home that day. My wife was waiting for me with a packed bag saying either you go to rehab or you need to get out. And uh, I opted to get out because when I went home, I was in withdrawal at that moment. And I, the, the prospect of going to going through withdrawal, I didn't know about Suboxone or anything like that yet, um, uh, was too much for me. So I left. I left the home. And I spent the next six months um, of early 2018, from January of 2018 to June of 2018, literally sleeping on a piece of cardboard in a doorway on Golden Gate Avenue in the Tenderloin, uh, struggling with heroin and crack and fentanyl. And uh, it wasn't until I got arrested that things started to change, but it wasn't the first time that I got arrested. I got arrested six times in a three-month period uh, from April 2018 to June 2018. And the first time, and what had happened is that in order, I'd been cut off from all my money, cut off from my family. The only thing I was getting was GA, general assistance benefits from the city and county, which was about $521 a month, I think. Um, and some food stamps, which I was selling to local merchants for 50 cents on the dollar for cash so I could use them for drugs. That, that amount of money lasted me a weekend, maybe, maybe a long weekend, three, four days. Um, so I started becoming a mule for the drug dealers out there on the street. I started holding drugs for the drug dealers in exchange for payment. I was literally sitting there one day and one of them came up to me and said, hey, you know, Tom, quieres trabajo? You want to work? And I said, yeah. And he handed me this gym sock and he's like, hold this. And then he handed me a dime of heroin. <laughs> I was like, this is free? He goes, yeah, just hold that. So uh, I started holding it and it turns out with that. Hold it for what? Oh, well, it was his stash. It had his, it was filled with bindles and bindles of heroin, crack cocaine and crystal meth, right? And so I was holding it for him as a decoy so that you know he would have some drugs that he would hold in his mouth because they're pre-wrapped in plastic. Um, so if the cops rolled up on him, he could swallow his drugs and there went his evidence. And then he didn't have his stash on him because I'm sitting over here holding his stash for him within his line of sight, 
right? And they would pay me in drugs to hold their drugs for them. And so I started doing that for about six or seven different dealers. And I was supporting my drug habit doing that. So for a couple of months, if you want to call it great, things were great. I was, <laughs> I had all the heroin I needed and I was holding these drugs until one day the cops did a sting on that block and they had been you found a business model that worked for you. That's right. I did. I, so I sought out and found a business model that worked for me. And, you know, the cops did a sting. They were watching me all day, holding all these drugs. They busted me holding six socks in my jacket of drugs, about four and a half ounces of heroin that I had on my person at that time. And, uh, you know, when I got busted, I thought that's it. I'm going to prison. It's four ounces of heroin, four plus ounces. I spent less than 24 hours in jail. I was released on my own recognizance. However you feel about that, I was released on my own recognizance back into homelessness um, with just a pending court date. And and you were released in withdrawal? In withdrawal. Oh, yeah. I was in withdrawal because I hadn't been in jail long enough to be given Suboxone or given any kind of help or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I call the, the beginning of the washing machine that I went through. I proceeded to get arrested five more times after that within a three-month period, either for possession with intent to sell because I was holding the drugs for the dealers or violating the stay away order the court had placed on me to stay away from that block uh, in the tenderloin. Uh, it wasn't until the sixth time that I got arrested uh, that they actually held me in jail for a minute. Uh, they said that I'd caught too many cases to too close together to be released again. So that was when I went into the medical pod. And then before I got sent to the general population, I was given a five day taper of buprenorphine or suboxone. Um, to help with the withdrawal. And the reason they did that is that when you get booked into county jail, you meet with a triage nurse here in San Francisco. And they ask you, you know, do you use drugs? How much do you use? So I was honest. I was just honest with her. I said, you know, I use this much. I use about a gram, two grams a day of heroin. They're like, okay. So later on that day, the nurse came around and started giving me these two pills to put under my tongue to melt. And that was Suboxone. Uh, because I was curled up in a ball, already going into withdrawal, in a cold sweat, you know, the whole usual withdrawal symptoms, in county jail, didn't want to eat, all that stuff. Um, I just wanted to be left alone. And then they gave me those pills. And literally within about two minutes, I felt fine. I felt better. And uh, they did that for five days. It was a five-day taper. And uh, that was the last time I touched any type of illicit drug of any kind. And that was on... So I went into jail on June 23rd, 2018. So June 28th, 2018 was the last time I've taken anything other than Advil or multivitamins. Uh, wow. You know, usually if you've been using heroin for two years, it's a relatively short amount of time. Um, your opioid addiction was for what? Five? Two years? Uh, no, no, three, three, three plus. So early 2015 until mid 2018. So relatively short, which is maybe why a short course of buprenorphine helped for you. But people who've been addicted to opioids for 10 years, I would say you need to be on buprenorphine for at least a year before you even think about stopping, just so you can get your brain back. So well, you're, I think you're lucky that you just five days worked for you. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I, I actually support the use of, of MAT, medically assisted treatment. I think buprenorphine is a great drug. And I think that it should be made way more widely available. The X waiver is not enough. Uh, we need to do more than that uh, to get it into the hands of people on the street. And the reason I say that is because if you fast forward now to 2021 to what's going on with illicit fentanyl, 
especially I, I like to focus on San Francisco because I feel like San Francisco is like a microcosm of how bad it can really get for the entire country. And I know people yeah. talk about Ohio and what's happening on the East Coast, but in San Francisco, illicit fentanyl has become a heroin replacement, an opioid replacement. It's not mm-hmm. something that you supplement and mix in with your heroin here. People don't do that here. People have just cut straight to the hard stuff, right? And and now we're seeing you know hundreds of overdose deaths. And definitely, it's a it's a problem across the America. We're now up to ninety thousand mm-hmm. overdoses within a year period from October to October, and the West Coast is see, hit hard with fentanyl with um, deaths up threefold in homeless population fivefold. I mean, Tom, you may not be alive today if what happened to you occurred in 2020 instead of 2015. Well, let me put it this way. So at the end, at the end of my run on the street in 2018, fentanyl was just hitting the street, right? Mm -hmm. I remember, you know, three different times where I woke up next to somebody I fell asleep next to that, and I woke up and they were dead and they had overdosed on fentanyl. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the body counts are going up. Uh, yesterday, I admitted to our uh, intensive care unit, a gentleman who we put him on a naloxone drip where it's continuously in this bloodstream because, you know, you got him kind of back with, with naloxone for presumed fentanyl overdose, uh, fentanyl and methamphetamine is what we found in his system. And we put him on a continuous drip because it's, it's so powerful. And uh, right. So, Tom, let's answer the question we have from John Lovell about safe injection sites. What is your opinion? So, you know, I've, I've written some stuff about this that's going to come out in a national news pub- publication uh, maybe next week or the week after. And I have mixed feelings, to be honest with you, about safe consumption sites. Um, so, look, users are going to use, Right. So it doesn't matter if they use it in a doorway, an alleyway, or in a safe place. I'd rather have people use in a safe place. That part I'm cool with, with a safe, safe consumption site. But to suggest, to be quite frank, to suggest that this is the pathway for people to get onto the road to recovery, I have some, some challenges with accepting that narrative. Only because I look at, you know, everyone points to Vancouver to Insight, what they're doing in Vancouver. And I got nothing against what they're doing. Look, they're trying to save lives. It's true that nobody has overdosed and died inside a safe injection site. That's true. But, you know, in March of 2021, Vancouver still had 151 overdose deaths. So their referral rate to treatment is about 16%. And about 2% of that 16% have actually accepted treatment um, from from there. So all I'm saying is that it's not this panacea that everyone is saying it's going to be. Okay. Is it going to provide a safe space for people to shoot up drugs? Yeah, it will. Um, will it make those people that decide to use it safer? Yeah, it will. But you have to think deeper. There's layers behind that. You have to think about the demographic, who is going to use the safe injection site. Uh, when I was homeless on the street, someone asked me that point blank. Would you have used a safe injection site? Probably not. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Reason number one, I didn't care. I didn't want to die. When I was on the street, but I didn't care if I did because I had lost all hope, right? That's one. Two, the, the other big reason is that, um, you know, homeless people have belongings. It's not like you're just out there with just your clothes and nothing. You have backpacks, you have sometimes dogs, you have, uh, you know, things that you've collected on the street that are yours, that are your belongings. And, you know, it's hard to drag all that stuff three blocks down to the safe consumption site and, uh, and hope that they have a locker that you can put it in and 
that it all fits in there because if you leave it in, and if you walk away from your stuff, I promise you it won't be there when it get, when you get back, it's either going to be stolen by other people that are on the street or maybe the department of public works is going to come and take it away and throw it away. There's all these different considerations. And then the last thing, Dr. Lev, that I just want to mention is that look in San Francisco, the majority of the people using illicit fentanyl right now are smoking it on foil because it comes in a powdered form, sprinkle it on the foil, you smoke it. And, you know, because fentanyl is so strong, it's cutting through all those percentages of, of absorption that we talk about with heroin. You know, when you shoot up with heroin, the absorption rate's really high. When you smoke it, it's a lot lower. Fentanyl cuts through that. So, you know, the majority of the 713 people that overdosed in 2020 in San Francisco, the majority of them ingested it through vaping it, through basically smoking it off foil. You sprinkle some on the foil, you light your lighter under the foil, it, you know, the fumes come up, you inhale it with a straw, and there you go. Uh, so are people going to be able to smoke in safe consumption sites? So right now, the answer is no to that. And that's something nobody talks about, nobody's mentioned. And it's kind of funny as to why no one has talked about or mentioned that. Um, so in California, we have something called the Clean Air Act. <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a true barrier to people ingesting their drugs by smoking it because it, there's secondhand smoke that comes off of your meth pipe, comes off of your crack pipe, that comes out of smoking your fentanyl. So now you've excluded all that subgroup of individuals from having access to a safe consumption site. So you're really just focusing on intravenous drug users, which is great for them. For them, it's great. But is it really going to solve the larger problem of the mass influx of illicit fentanyl that's hit the streets and how it's being how we're how we're no longer putting any kind of deterrent in place to try to dissuade individuals from selling illicit fentanyl on the street? No, it won't. So the, the problem I have with the safe consum consumption injection sites is it doesn't seem like a model that the uh, American drug user would necessarily want. It's, I mean, I'm sure it'll, it'll help some people. Okay, but do we want to spend money on bricks and mortar and personnel at, on a very small sub-segment of the population? Or are we better off um, with very bad statistics? I mean, what you said from Vancouver, or the people who use that and go into treatment, it's, it's negative. Um, I think that's a, that's, that shows you a failed model, frankly. You can't just count the number of people who don't die who go there. You have to, uh, how about how many total people die overall in that community? How about number of people getting to treatment? I, mean, I think that, that that statistic in itself shows that it's failed. And for the American drug user, I think it's just like what you said. I think most people don't want to go use in, in public. And I was going to suggest um, more of a, like a scuba diving, like use drugs with a buddy and everyone have naloxone would be a much, you would save more lives that way. I, I agree. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm all for wide distribution of naloxone and wide distribution of buprenorphine as an alternative to necessarily spending the millions. And, you know, the thing is, is that it's become a political issue, right? You have Senator Scott Weiner in California, who's introduced this legislation to get safe consumption sites opened up in San Francisco, LA, and Oakland. It's receiving widespread support here in California. The governor is probably going to sign that into law and then challenge the federal government to look the other way. Uh, 
in allowing a safe consumption site to open, but they can't look the other way because if they do, then that means there's okaying Philadelphia to do it. They're okaying Seattle to do it. They're okaying everybody else to do it. So um, again, we're, you know, we just don't learn from history. We, we, I mean, speaking as a physician who at the beginning of my career was told you need to prescribe more opioids. Um, and then we did, and, and that was a mistake. And before you say something that is good and healthy and scientifically uh, works, um, you got to study it and not just study it from the perspective of like, oh, look, no one died here at this time. You look at what it's done to the whole problem of the addiction and I'd say it made it worse. Vancouver is not a model of addiction health, right? It's, it's one of the worst places in the world. What it is, is it's a model of harm reduction. And I'm and I and I support certain aspects of harm reduction, but a model of health? No, I, I I agree with you. It is not a model of health. And if we create a pipeline, you know, there's a role for everything, right? There's a role for treatment, for harm reduction, and prevention. But if we look at everything as a as a whole, if uh, if we don't make a stop, you're just going to have more and more problems. Think about an infectious disease like COVID. You know, we can do a lot of testing for COVID. We can come up with great treatment for COVID. But if we really want to stop COVID, we need a vaccine. We need prevention. Not that treatment for people who are sick is not important and not that, you know, other, other testing isn't important. Um, but if you really want to tackle a medical problem, it, it comes from prevention. And and another great example is the prescription opioid epidemic. Um, we you know started, like I said, in my career, you need to prescribe more opioids. And the way we've ended the prescription opioid epidemic, and that, you know, obviously we still have a drug epidemic and we still have to practice safe prescribing. Um, we're not perfect, but the prescription opioid epidemic ended with prevention. We manage people who are addicted to those prescriptions. Um, you could uh, argue whether we did a good or bad job on that, but the way things ended was in prevention. Um, so again, there's a role for for all these things. It's it's not just one thing, but you have to think about the the global. Um, total amount of people using drugs. If you're just creating normalization of drugs and a pipeline of more people using drugs, or it's going to be a sad situation. You're right. And, and, you know, we're faced with kind of this daunting issue with, with illicit fentanyl now, because it's, um, you know, it's kind of impossible to stop them from, from getting it because they're getting the chemicals are coming from China in huge shipments of other things that are impossible to detect, right? They're coming into American and Mexican ports, being transported through Mexican laboratories that, that are, um, you know, kind of offline cartel fuel laboratories and manufactured into illicit fentanyl and then being smuggled across our border. And, you know, that's a fact. Those, all those things are facts that are happening. And so the harm reduction folks on the, on this side are saying, well, you know, if we just legalize fentanyl, that problem would go away. And I love that that people say that all the time, because I, I, always stop and I say, so have you guys stopped and talked to the cartel lately to see what they have to say about that? Are they going to be on board with that? Uh, and then, you know, and then, so you really have to think about, you know, what the interdictions are going to be to try to, you know, we're not going to stop it, but we can slow it down a little bit. Uh, what are and the That's where uh, people like James Rowell and Families Against Fentanyl are, are working on that level right. of the, the, the problem of trying to, um, treat fentanyl as a weapon of mass destruction right. and have less of those 
precursors available. Right. And, and I, and I support that in general, only because at the ground level, you know, on the street, you watch, I'm watching the level of suffering has mm-hmm. deepened. That's the thing. It's not that there's, you can argue whether or not there's more homeless people on the street using drugs, but the level of suffering on the street has deepened to levels that I never saw when I was living on the street three years ago. You know what? We just um, published a medical examiner data from San Diego that the number of homeless people who die from overdoses has gone up fivefold mm-hmm. in the past year. Five. That's crazy. So we, really. we, we've lost 249 through April in San Francisco from drug overdose. So you are you live in San Francisco, right, Tom? Yep. And what do you think over your years used to be the most beautiful city and, you know, one of the top beautiful places in the world to visit? And what has happened over time Wow, to San Francisco? Okay, so it's like a combination, like a perfect storm of stuff. So uh, I'm just going to list it in this way and not necessarily say it's an, it's not in any particular order, okay? So mm-hmm. there's a lack of affordable housing. There's a lack of permanent supportive housing. There has been a removal of, of or, or an attempt to break down and remove any type of police response to create a deterrent for open air drug dealing on the street. There has been a complete 180 in change in the prosecutorial prosecutorial outcomes of people charged with drug dealing in San Francisco. That is some type of interdiction to dealers spending less than less than an average of three days in jail per charge for repeat drug dealing offenses on the street. Uh, you put all of that together, throw COVID on top of that, pour some illicit fentanyl on top of that. And you've created a situation where we have really in reality about 17,000 homeless people in San Francisco. We have about 25,000 just intravenous drug users in San Francisco and then thousands more that are smoking and on foil uh, in San Francisco. And you have a very, very, very progressive left, even uh, democratic socialist board of suit, uh, majority on the board of supervisors in San Francisco that is completely and totally against any policing of, of anything that even remotely sounds like the war on drugs or remotely sounds like they're criminalizing homelessness. And the bottom line is, is that being homeless is not a crime. Being a drug addict isn't a crime, but being an illicit drug dealer, being a drug dealer selling illicit fentanyl over and over and over again is a crime, especially when the stuff that you're selling is killing two people a day. In, in the neighborhood that you're selling in, that's a crime, period, right? Or disturbing the peace or assaults or- the, uh, the violence that comes with- Theft and robberies right. and- Right, those are all crimes. And you know what, look, I, I'm just gonna say from my perspective, I was held accountable. I ended up spending three months in county because I was shoplifting, I was holding drugs and you know I was doing all that stuff that I needed to do to support my habit. And finally I was held accountable. And look, three months in county is not 15 years in prison like everyone's saying. You know, well, as I see it, Tom, going to jail saved your life. It did. It did. So look, not only did the harm reduction piece come in with the with the suboxone, but then I was given an opportunity to go to a to a six month inpatient drug treatment program through the Salvation Army for free. So you can people can say what they want about the Salvation Army, but the bottom line is that I was housed, clothed, fed, given twelve step faith based counseling for free. It didn't cost me a dollar. And it ended my homelessness. I would say that at 
and tell me if you agree. And but it sounds like San Francisco and there are some other, you know, places around the United States that are very liberal and are normalizing drug use. And what that does is create more drug use and more problems. Completely agree with you. They, they've totally normalized it. Not just normalized it; they've glamorized it. That's the problem. Ah. So look, there's there's uh, some nonprofits like in the city that, that that put out pamphlets on how to use safely, right? Harm reduction yeah. pamphlets on how to shoot up safely, how to smoke your fentanyl safely. There's yeah, one. Yeah, we saw how that worked for you. Right. There's one of those pamphlets that at the end of the pamphlet um, on shooting up heroin, it says, "Enjoy your high." So now they've crossed the line, in my opinion, by just putting that one statement from harm reduction to enabling. And what does that do to your kids? What does it do to children? I mean, who? Well, it makes it, it create more drug use. Right. It, cre it, it creates this appearance that it's all good. If you want to use drugs, it's cool. Just be careful. But hey, you know, you got to do what you got to do. And, and I have to say it like that because that's how I have to talk to my kids now. Because I, I talk to my kids from a recovery perspective, but I also talk to them because they're going to do what they're going to do at some point in their life. So I just want them to make a good decision and have their eyes wide open to what could happen to them. Right. And protect them. You have to protect their growing brain and, and their brain's not growing to done until 25, 27. So our job in society and you as a dad is protect them beyond the legal age of 18 or 21, right. but the scientific age of 25, 27. And now, and now you can say, look, in recovery, going in, ha, everything that happened to me happened to me for a reason, because now in recovery, I'm three years, on June 24th, I'll be three years clean and sober. Um, wow. So congratulations. Thank you. Um, and it's a blessing, really, it is, you know, I mean, it I, it's a miracle, really, to be honest with you, because I should have been dead um, a few different times. Um, you know, I don't know how many, I didn't tell you before, but you know, when I would drive the car to go downtown to score my dope. Uh, you know, I'd be in withdrawal, you know, one time, I, I mean, more than one time I got into an accident. I hit the guardrail one time, popped two tires. Uh, I nodded out while I was driving on the freeway and I woke up, I started off in the left lane and I woke up, I was in the right lane and I don't know how I didn't hit a car. You know, you put, <laughs> you make a very good point that a lot of people don't think about in health profession and law enforcement is that you get into car accidents, not just when you're high, but also when you're within withdrawal. Oh yeah. Cause when you're in withdrawal, you get real, I got real sleepy when I was in withdrawal. I could hardly mm -hmm. keep my eyes open. And then it felt sick at the same time. It was just a terrible feeling. Like I don't. Ever... Did you mix methamphetamine? I tried it a few times. Uh, it okay. wasn't really my, my drug of choice, but you know, we were all, you know, you know, my drug, my drug of choice was opioids or, or opiates, heroin, whatever you want to call it. But I did everything else too. I smoked a ton of crack. I did cocaine. I did some meth, certainly drank a lot of booze when I was out on the, out on the street, clonopin, uh, pretty much anything I could get my hands on. I would do it if it made me so feel high. And that's what the case is with most people that use drugs. It's not like they're just picking one drug. If they're in addiction, if they're in their addiction, I promise you. They're not doing just one drug. They're, they have a bunch of other drugs that they're also doing along with it. Just, What's your opinion on marijuana? It's, you said, okay, you used it as a kid. Do you feel like it's not so bad? Well, so look, the, I'll just say it like this. The marijuana that they're selling now was not the marijuana I was using in the 80s. It's not Acapulco Gold, okay? It's 99% THC. They're canna bumps, which is the powdered, powdered THC that you can snort like cocaine, uh, there are gummies that look like kids candy, you know, it, and it's, it's 20 times stronger than the stuff that we were using back then. 
Um, so I just want to put that out there. Like, you know, it, I don't think that if we knew that when we voted for Prop 187 or whatever it was to decriminalize pot in California and legalize it, I think that most of us that voted for it were from my generation, the Gen X generation that remembers smoking some Acapulco gold, you know, Cheech and Chong and all that stuff, right? Uh, I don't think we thought it was going to morph into big, a big tobacco-like situation like yeah. it has become, unfortunately. And as an emergency physician, I take care of people with marijuana poisoning every single shift. And um, I have not met a person who was lucky enough to be alive after a fentanyl overdose who didn't start their path with marijuana. Well, and even you, if you really think about it. Um, uh, and even if it was the, you know, the cheap, uh, minor type of marijuana, that, that exposure, um, so mar marijuana being, you know, being given a glass of wine at nine years old at a family party didn't help either. I remember, you know, my, you know, when I say I come from a family of alcoholics, you know, my grandfather was a world war II veteran and he was an alcoholic. And I remember going to visit him in Las Vegas when I was like 10 and at 10 o'clock in the morning, he'd be like, hey, hey, Tom, go into the kitchen and fix me a bourbon and water. You know, so here I am at 10 years old, mixing drinks with bourbon and water and giving it to my grandfather. And I thought that that was just the coolest thing. So again, you know, it, but it turns, you know, he was having those at 10 in the morning and by two in the afternoon, he was passed out on the couch, right? So this is these kinds of things that kind of maybe open the door to saying, hey, well, maybe this isn't so bad. Let me try this. Well, maybe this isn't so bad. Let me try that. And I'm not calling for prohibition of alcohol or anything like that, but I think education and prevention at a young age would go a long way to kind of steering people um, to the side. Because what we're doing now is the education that's happening in my kids' school around drugs is about, well, we, we, we know you're going to use, so we want you to use safely. But there's no right, no, there's, and 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 that mentality is wrong. It, it is. And the analogy that I heard, and I had um, Dr. Dupont um, uh, on the program, who's you know really world renowned uh, uh, psychiatrist in this field, and I used the analogy. It's like, oh well, people, kids are going to have sex anyway, so might as well teach them how to do it safely. Kids are going to use drugs anyway, so teach them how to do it safely. That's wrong. Most kids don't use drugs. That's statistics. That's the science. And if you're going to say that again and again, then yeah, you'll have more kids using drugs. And and what Dr. DuPont really pointed out is sex is a biological healthy behavior of procreation. Um, there's not a species out there, including humans, where drug use is a biological necessity. Right? This is this is not. It's not. It's 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 a problem. It's right. not a natural thing. So just assuming that, oh, well, all kids are going to use drugs anyways is is wrong. And to to push harm reduction on children goes is not where harm reduction belongs. I agree. And the thing is, is that, you know, look, when I was 15, you know, I wanted to I liked a girl and wanted to have, you know, relations with that girl. Right. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, I never got those same feelings about drugs until I already became addicted to drugs. You know what I mean? As far as like wanting it. So mm -hmm. there's like a, you, like you said, there's this inert feeling because of biology that, Hey, you want to, you want to have relations, sex or whatever with someone, right. You don't get those same feelings about drugs. I don't have, I didn't have like a desire when I was 15 to I can't wait to try heroin, man. You know, kind of the same way as I can't wait to kiss a girl or whatever. So yeah, I think the two things are skewed and I, and I think that it, it would really help my kids and my kids' friends, especially that don't have mm -hmm. a parent in recovery 
to talk to them about prevention. Um, I think that's key to start talking about that. Not necessarily your brains on drugs and all that with the frying pan like we did in the 80s, right? <laughs> I remember but, that. But being honest and being realistic, but saying, look, the best pathway for you is to just try to avoid that. And especially right now, the drug supply, the street drug supply is contaminated with fentanyl right now. How many kids, how many accidental overdoses have we seen and read about? Where kids are, you know, I bought a Xanax bar off of, of from a friend on Instagram, and I took it, and it was laced with fentanyl and died. It's happened. It's happening a lot. It's happening a lot. It's very, very sad. Yeah. So, looking at your own journey, if you go back and look at prevention, um, I bet you can name a few steps from from that time with your grandfather, um, where prevention could have made a difference. Well, it could have because the, the whole idea around alcohol consumption at 10 o'clock in the morning is not a normal behavior, but <laughs> I was taught that it was a normal behavior, you see? Mm -hmm. So it's all about, you know, where at that time can those things change? So you as a parent, it's really key for parents to look at where they can find those opportunities to talk to their kids about drug use and the subsequent dangers potentially the, the issues that you have to watch out for and it's not to we're not trying to stigmatize anybody but just be honest with them uh so it really it would be really important i think it would be beneficial for parents to get themselves to get educated about addiction to get educated about recovery to get educated about uh the predisposition that some people have towards addiction mm -hmm. and to educate themselves about trauma and how trauma really fuels the whole addiction crisis in this country and get yourself informed and and find, you know, advocate, talk to your, talk to your community about you know, mental health resources, things like that, to help address some of those issues for, for kids that are maybe in not such a great situation where turning to self-medication helps. What about prevention when you, when you had the surgery on your foot? Okay. You were given only 30 pills. I mean, if you had that surgery, if you, in 2011, you would have gotten more probably from your doctor. Um, what a, is there an intervention at that point or do you, because you said, you kind of mentioned like, okay, well I had the surgery and that got me um, started on that. Well, or is it really, if you dig deep, it wasn't the surgery. Okay. It was all the other things going on in your life. That too. And there, there's some other things like, um, you know, so this is something I've kind of left out of my story, Dr. Lev, and I'll be honest with mm -hmm. you about it. You know, um, so for, for a period of time there, in the past, maybe 2011, 2012, 2013, I was doing, uh, I was using tramadol for back pain, mm -hmm. which is an opioid too. Mm -hmm, uh, not, not, not as strong, but I, uh, yeah, 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 it is a strong. And, and that's, uh, so I'm sorry to cut you that's off, okay. but, but tramadol pisses me off because they, they sell it as like to doctors and to patients like, oh, this is not addicting and this is safer. And it's not, it's the same morphine equivalence as a hydrocodone. And it's just as addicting as a hydrocodone. And it has more side effects than a hydrocodone. And I feel like that's part of pharma really misleading both the medical and, and, um, and public. And, and I, I, I leave that kind of out of my story when I tell my story, because, you know, I took it for two, three years and then I stopped. I was able to stop cold turkey. I went into withdrawal too, but it didn't last long. And I, and it was a few days and then I was okay. Um, and I took that because, you know, Hey, I was prescribed it. I was having some back issues. I was over, really overweight at the time. I was about 300 pounds at the time. 
so it was really helping with back pain. It was helping me function. It was giving me energy. It was doing really well at work with it. So um, it was actually, I, I didn't ever, I, I later on privately, I reflected on that saying, okay, you know, that probably is what really introduced me to the whole euphoric feeling of opioids. And I didn't really realize that euphoria until I popped three 10 milligram oxycodones. And now it was like taking 30 milligrams and man, everything was cool. I was sitting there with my foot in a cast, like everything's cool. I've got no problems in the world. You know, my, my wife and I are having problem, marital problems. Uh, we're, we've got a mound of debt. We're thinking about bankruptcy. Uh, I just had surgery on my foot, but everything's fine. That's how that pill made me feel. That's how that 30 milligrams of oxycodone made me feel. So, you know, I guess if you want to connect the dots, because there was a break between the two um, for me, but it wasn't a break in recovery. It was just, I stopped. But then when I started these a couple of years later, it was all good. So I don't know. I don't know if there's a connection. I don't know what you think. You're a doctor. But I, I will say that I do remember taking that tramadol. I remember it made me feel good. Um, so I can't say that subconsciously maybe that didn't help make it easier for me to to continue to self-medicate. Yeah, I, I'm sure it, it, it was because it's like, oh, it, you know. Right. It relapse, right? A person is not using, people think about alcohol, they're most familiar. You're not using for a while, you're doing okay. Then you have that first sip and it was like, ah, uh, now it's hard to stop. But it was just more intense this time because it was stronger. I mean, obviously it was stronger and then it spiraled from there. And, and you were, but you were taking more. I, you didn't take one. Right. I didn't take them as prescribed. So I, right. I mean, yeah, that's why it felt so stronger because a right. 50, the number of morphine equivalents in one 50 milligram tablet of tramadol and five hydrocodones about the same. Holy crap. Wow. Uh, yeah. That that was definitely not what I was told when I was given right. that drug. I know. That's you know? why you got the emotional response out of me with the tramadol. Right. And, and I even um, remember we ordering- worked really hard to get tramadol into our PDMP, into our cure system in order to get that message out to the medical community. Um, wow. And uh, so, yeah. That, I, that's I remember ordering them. lots of tramadol off the internet too. So- I remember some doctor in Maryland would sign off on my script and it would show up in the mail a couple of days later. So, so we, <laughs> the good old days, about, right? <laughs> yeah. We talked about the prevention side of your journey and how about the treatment and recovery side of your journey? You went through um, Suboxone, which helped with the withdrawal symptoms, the, the like avoiding that ne negative. That was very helpful. And And then what did you do? 12 step or what did, what helped you and what helps you today? So I did 12 step. Um, I went the abstinence based route because the rehab I went to, that was the, that was the therapeutic program that they were practicing. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you have to understand it wasn't like I was just like some, some businessman and everything was cool and I got addicted and went to rehab and everything's fine. No, I had fallen out, blown through over a hundred thousand dollars, lost my house to foreclosure, uh, lost my wife. She slapped a restraining order on me. I couldn't talk to my kids and I was sleeping on the street. Right. So I had all it's about as, as low as you can go. Right. So that's and I'd gone through the jail system. Right. So I'd been through all of those things. So you have to I, I can't stress enough that I want people to understand out there that are trying to learn about addiction, that there it's not just addiction. There's mental illness that comes with it. There's there's um, you know, sometimes it's homelessness. There's trauma. There's violence. There's all these things that kind of get wrapped up into this one ball. And then when you go into treatment, you send, you're like, oh, I'll go to a 28 day program, man. That's that 
after 30 days in rehab was when I was just, my head was just starting to clear enough. That's right. You still have to get your brain back. Right. And it took longer than that, but that was, that was just when I started dealing with the guilt and the shame of all the crap that I had pulled Mm -hmm. when I was out there. And so I needed that six months to not only learn to forgive myself, uh, learn to understand what happened to me, uh, start to own the things that I did in my addiction uh, and then start, you know, using the steps, starting to try to make amends for those, for those things by rebuilding relationships to start um, for those that were willing to do so. And, uh, and look, again, for me, for me, and I'll just speak for me that the 12 step process and believing in a higher power gave me faith. It did. It gave me faith, not, not organized religion, but faith and spirituality to help me inside because I felt like part of my addiction was that I, I had become kind of, you know, there was a little bit of a spiritual bankruptcy in there, a little bit of moral turpitude in there uh, that got pushed because of my addiction to levels that I had never would have otherwise done if I wasn't struggling with addiction. I would have never stolen anything from Target. I would have never held drugs for the dealers. I would have never stole drugs from someone else on the street. And I would have never stole the phone that I stole from somebody else on the street. Those are all things that I did in my addiction. I would have never stole money from my family. I would have never driven with my kids in the car to go buy dope if I wasn't addicted to drugs. And I had to learn to own all of those things, be accountable for all of those things, admit all of those things, and then, and then find a way to let all of that go and then ask the people that you love the most to also let it go too. That's not an easy task to do. So It's not. And you really give such a great example of Tom, people who are in recovery. I always say that people who are in recovery are the nicest human beings ever. <laughs> and that, you know, the people who don't have an addiction, if, you know, they can't go through half of those steps, it's not easy. But if you've gone through all that and living a life like that, after admitting such horrible things and forgiving yourself and others forgiving you, it makes you a nicer human being. Well, it's liberating because, you know, the, the big thing about one of the biggest things in addiction is, man, is you can't tell the truth. Everything's a lie. Mm. It's true. You lie. You lie all the time. And that and if you're in a relationship with someone, everyone always talks about if you want to have a healthy marriage or healthy relationship, man, there has to be a modicum of some honesty there. Right. That had all gone out the window. And my wife had lost her trust in me. I remember her telling me I'd call her from the rehab and try to be talking to her. Even with a restraining order, I was still calling her and I wasn't supposed to. And she would she would just say to me, you know, your words mean nothing at this point. It's all about your actions. And uh, I, that really hit home for me in, in recovery because I had to come to terms with the fact that, you know, I may have to go this alone. And she I may probably was trained to do that as hard as it was for her to say when do. Oh, definitely. So, you know, yeah. when she found her support groups, uh, then it became separation with love at that point. Um, yeah. Which she had to do for her own sanity. You know, you, you, I say normalizing drug use and you say even better glamorizing drug use. I, I, there's a big movement to eliminating stigma when it comes to addiction. And I agree with part of it, um, but I worry about the slippery slope. So if somebody has a substance use disorder, they need treatment and assistance with compassion. Uh, and that means eliminating stigma for the people who are using drugs. Um, or have used drugs. But when it comes to, well, you don't want your kids doing drugs, you don't, you know, you, you, you don't want your kids smoking cigarettes or that, that stigma. 
don't, I don't want you to do what I did. I made a mistake. So you're stigmatizing drug use. So uh, there's a difference between stigma um, for the user, which we don't want to have, and stigma on the actual use of a behavior that we don't want to continue. And I think people have a hard time differentiating the two. I think you're right. And I think some very important people that have a voice around drug policy in this country have a difficult time differentiating between the two. And that, that needs to be called out. I, I try to do my part on, on social media to call out individuals that, that speak about that. And you know I'll be frank, uh, I, I have some pretty serious issues with what the Drug Policy Alliance is trying to do here in this country around that. Um, look, the bottom line is that I'm a recovering- The Drug Policy Alliance, and maybe just explain to our audience who, who they are because they are trying to normalize drug use. Right, so they're, they're, not, they're a national nonprofit organization based out of, I believe, Washington, DC, and their goal is to eventually legalize and create a safe supply of drugs in this country and promote harm reduction as the only methodology around treatment of substance use disorder and addiction. Uh, that, that's at least how I understand it. They also do a lot, unfortunately, to denigrate the 12-step movement for uh, recovery. And I don't think any movement at all around recovery should be denigrated because whatever it takes to get you better is good. Mm -hmm. Okay, that can be Jesus, that can be 12-step, that could be harm reduction. I'm cool with all of that, but don't try to push one to the side for the other. And that's what we've done around addiction. That's what we've done around the homeless issue in, in the United States. We pushed one thing aside for the other instead of integrating all of it together and accepting all of it as being tools for individuals because no one individual's story or route to recovery is the same. And we have to acknowledge that, right? So, yeah. so when they're, when they're blowing up, like, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous is bad. I'm just like, man, you know, have you talked to the millions of people that have gotten sober because of that program, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I try to call them out and, uh, and it's hard because, um, you know, I'm one voice and I'm in San Francisco. So I'm one voice against many <laughs> in San Francisco. You're a very strong voice. Tell our audience, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're an example, how one voice can make such a huge difference. You know, you, you had one article and it got people who, who can make a difference listening. So you're really an example how one person can make a difference. Well, and that's the thing people, I remember at the beginning of my advocacy, I, I basically got discovered because of Twitter. I was actually, you know, when I, when you get arrested in San Francisco, they post your mugshot on Twitter. And so my mugshot was on there saying Thomas Wolf continues to be arrested on the street this time with a bag of drugs at his feet. You know, if you see him, let us know. And eight months later, as I'm coming out of rehab, I, I'm looking for a job and I'm like, great. If I Googled my name and that's the first thing that came up, the only thing that came up was a mugshot. I'm like, oh, great. When I apply for a job. Yeah, yeah I'm not going to hire that guy. <laughs> I'm not going to hire that guy, right? <laughs> so I posted a reply on Twitter saying, hey, I'm now in recovery. I've got eight months clean and sober at the time. And I want to thank you guys and the Salvation Army for helping me turn my life around. And I did that as a way to kind of hedge my bets when I'm applying for a job so that mm. at least they would see that I'm in recovery. And that tweet went viral and went on Reddit and went viral. And then pretty soon I had uh, NBC and CNN knocking on my door and that's kind of how all of this started. So I just continued to speak from there as a voice of lived experience. Uh, someone actually, uh, not, not, a, not a, and this isn't a dig against you or anybody else, but actually someone that shot dope, someone yeah. that slept on the street, someone that's been to jail and someone that's in recovery to tell people what's really going on and what could really help 
here in San Francisco. And it's just hard because I'm going up against a bunch of, uh, you know, people with letters after their names that, especially here in the Bay Area, that are dictating drug policy in, in the Bay Area that have never shot dope. They've never stuck a needle in their neck. They've never slept a night on a piece of cardboard in the cold wind in San Francisco on the streets. Never had to survive and fight for their life in that way. Right. They, they did it all from their nice, comfortable house and all that. And that's not a dig on them. Good. Good on them. And I'm happy for everyone trying to have a voice here. But it's just hard when you try to tell someone that's been homeless and struggling with addiction that this is the best thing for you. I, I that's part of what motivated me to speak up by saying, you know, I just want to give a voice for those of us that were actually there that maybe a bunch of different things would help. Right. I, I think, and your, your voice is important. You obviously speak so eloquently and, and you're making a difference. So I thank you. Thank you so much for that. Look, I'm, I'm expanding my voice in advocacy. Uh, I'm going to LA in a couple of days. We're going to visit Skid Row and Venice beach to look at the homeless and the drug issues that are going on down there. Uh, and later on the summer, I'm going to go to Europe myself. I'm going to go to Amsterdam and I'm going to go to Portugal to find out how they got their drug crisis under control uh, and I think it, I think what we'll find is a very different picture of what people, how people think they got their drug crisis under control here. And I'll, I'm going to uh, uh, talk about that later on and try to expand my advocacy nationally that way. That's great. Well, good for you, and I, I wish you the the best of success. And um, really want to call out um, your wife and family for for you know taking support for themselves that ended up helping themselves as well as you. And, uh, you know, and congratulate you on your uh, recovery um, and, uh, you know, looking at your life. Um, isn't it amazing how you are making such an impact um, for, for our, our country because of the suffering that you went through? Well, th there's two things I just want last things I want to say. One, uh, if you're a family out there struggling with a member who's in it, who was had, had addiction issues and you're now in recovery and you're trying to figure out how to repair some of those, uh, some of that damage, family counseling was a huge benefit to us, to my family. And we still talk to our family counselor every couple of weeks just to check in uh, a huge benefit. So I really, really believe in mental health. It's a real thing. You know, we need to remove stigma around that. Um, that that's a big one for me. And then the other thing is that honestly, Dr. Lev, I'm just glad that I'm alive. I'm glad that I'm in recovery. Uh, I'm glad that I got my family back. I'm super thankful for that and grateful you're, for that. You're blessed. And everything else that has happened to me since then and mm. everything else that happens to me after that around my advocacy is just icing on the cake at this point for me. If I retired from all of this work that I'm doing now regarding you know, trying to get the word out and everything and my advocacy and just went back to a quiet life with my wife and kids, I would be that would be already seventh heaven right there. So that's that's what recovery does for people. It gives That's them, it gives them a, a second chance at a better life, at a better life. And you have that. Is there anything that you wish for for policymakers to um, really pay attention to? Um, um, we are, are facing, I think, an unprecedented crisis with illicit fentanyl. I think a lot more national attention needs to be paid to this. You hear some people talking about it, but. Uh, I know we have a relatively new administration in Washington, uh, but I would just urge and encourage them and anyone that makes drug control policy to really consider the fact that we need a blend 
in, in this country of harm reduction. We need a blend of abstinence-based treatment and we need a blend of some interdiction on the street. We do because our cities are the ones that are being punished the greatest with this problem. And there's all these movements towards decriminalization and lack and removing policing from the equation because everyone has PTSD from what happened last year and from what happened with the war on drugs. We all need to get over that and start thinking about this new crisis that's facing us now, which is an overdose crisis that is going to kill well over 100,000 people next year. And that number is gonna keep rising because the fentanyl can't be completely stopped. So we need to figure out a way on our end to mitigate some of that damage. We, we did a protest down on the Tenderloin a couple of days ago, right in the heart of ground zero of the drug crisis in San Francisco with a mom who, uh, whose son is homeless and addicted to fentanyl out on the street. Oh, we, we protested the drug dealers right where they sell drugs. We stood there. It was crazy. Um, you know, that's the kind of stuff I'm trying to do. It's like bring, bring some reality into it. Of course, it goes against the narrative here in San Francisco around drug use. So um, yeah. none of the harm reduction folks showed up and that's fine. They hate my guts because they think I misrepresent drug addicts and homelessness. And I just, it just kills me that they think that because I was actually a drug addict and homeless. I wonder if they, if you ask them, do you believe one size fits all? Look, it's like, it's like this. So the CEO of Health Right 360, which is the largest service provider of treatment beds in San Francisco, is abstinent in recovery. They got clean in a fully abstinence-based program, and all they do is harm reduction. So if you go into one of their rehabs, right, and you walk into their lobby, and you're trying to be in recovery, they have boxes of needles, clean rigs, cookers, tourniquets, crack pipes, meth pipes, Brillo, cotton balls, all laid out for you right there because they have to so that if you make the choice to relapse, you can do so with clean products to do so clean equipment why do you need the crack pucks and billow i thought it's oh, just needles. no because why people people you- people relapse on meth people relapse on crack people oh and they give you foil and straws too uh so you can yeah smoke but why i don't understand why you i understand needles that has a medical reason right. you know I, I i'd rather give you a needle and not so, have to treat your hiv or so hepatitis c they're that saying, makes they're sense saying to me. that sharing pipes uh, there's a chance that you can spread hepatitis by sharing pipes, but the chance is less than 0.001% or something That's like that. That's not how you get. Yeah. I know. So they, they argue that and they argue why that foil share, and straws. Why don't we give thing. everybody forks and knives and plates and stuff too? Right. Exactly. Thank you. That, that's my argument. So, and uh, so this is what happens when you go to a rehab that's a harm reduction focused rehab in San Francisco versus an abstinence based rehab in San Francisco. And San, the San Francisco City and County, the Department of Public Health, does not fund any abstinence based programs at all. They only fund harm reduction programs. Uh, that's about to change, though. The city is, is this close to funding a 105 bed abstinence based therapeutic program in San Francisco. And I had a lot to do with helping get, getting that. making that happen. And that's not to toot my horn, but it's just to say that, you know, one voice along with others in recovery can make change, even in a city that is off the rails as it is about drugs and their approach to drug treatment at San Francisco. Because the goal here is not to get anybody clean. Okay. They have no desire to get people clean here. They have the desire here truly is to just have you use with dignity. That's it. Yeah. I think that's a mistake. It's a huge mistake because And it's not fair to those people. Well, what if someone just gave up on you? Look, the thing here's the thing that death is the ultimate statistic, guys. Right? You can't have a statistic that hits harder than how many people have died. 
San Francisco will lose a thousand people to drug overdose by the end of this year, period. And it's because the policies that we put in place have crossed the line from harm reduction to enabling, period. Glamorizing. And they, yeah. they won't admit it, but they're starting to. I've got a couple of people to say, actually say, and you know, they're starting to. So we're starting to turn the tide, but it's hard because, you know, we're, I'm outnumbered. People like me are outnumbered in the city and uh, the powers that be in San Francisco around harm reduction, around housing, all that, the nonprofits and everything, they're very powerful. They're backed by the harm reduction, national harm reduction coalition. Um, they're very powerful and they can slap you down hard. So you have to be careful and maneuver and kind of work within the framework in San Francisco. You can't just come right out and say something because it'll immediately brand you as a Republican, even though I'm a Democrat, uh, and try to completely discredit you and cancel you and all that stuff. So extremism on either side is bad in this. We all need to kind of meet in the middle on this. Otherwise, yeah. you get that horseshoe effect, which is what's happening right now. So yeah, those are just my opinions. Well, <laughs> I love it. So, Tom, tell us if the, our listeners want to hear more from you, where would they go to? So, uh, if you want to hear more from me, if you want me to speak to your community or to your organization, go visit my website, www.tomwolf.org. Uh, you'll see a bunch of my articles on there, podcasts that I've done. Uh, I'm available for speaking engagements, uh, and there's a way for you to contact me through that website. And I encourage you to do so as we need to raise awareness about the overdose crisis, about the drug crisis, and how it complicates the issue of homelessness. And we also need to raise awareness about recovery in this, this country. This country right now is in desperate need of recovery. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tom. T thank you for your advocacy, for your voice, for, for sharing a, um, a deep and personal um, not complimentary journey of your life and, and be able to be honest uh, about that. And, uh, and I think that you're helping, you know, hundreds and millions of people by doing that. Thank you, doctor. I appreciate that. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors, a sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research in San Diego, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. We want to hear from you. Post a comment or email us about one thing you learned from this program. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us a five-star review. And subscribe so you won't miss any of our information-packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com, to submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions, and I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.